All right, well, good morning, friends. It is good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, thanks to the, uh, the praise band. We have an amazing group of people, don't we? A talented group. That just does some great things for us. Good to have CJ with us up here. We stole him from the kids. They're still mad at me uh, about that. Yeah, and you too, Will. They want you back down there. But what a great group. Y'all are having just too much fun this morning. I love that little jam. You went down to the, the bass guitar. You know, as some say, it's all about the bass. And so... <laughs> There's your culturally relevant, I'm totally hip and cool comment for the day. <laughs> I have nothing else for you. Uh, but welcome to West Bowl, especially if it's your first time with us, first time in a long time. We feel like God is doing some great things in this place and through the people in this place, and we're honored, uh, grateful that you've spent some time with us this morning, that you're a part of it. I hope that you've recovered from what happened to the home team last weekend. It's uh, something that we refer to around the office as the game we don't speak of. So... Uh, and although we are frustrated with what happened to the Broncos, we're excited about what's happening here at West Bowles. That's my best positive spin on, uh, on what happened. But uh, great things are going on. Again, if you're joining us for the first time, stop at the Welcome Center, grab yourself a little mug, some information about our faith, about our church. And if it's second or third time with us, you're thinking about making this place your home, we've got some resources for you, some books we'd love to, to share with you. Uh, last week, we jumped into a new series called The Story. And the story is a series where we're looking at select portions of Scripture in the hopes that we will see how the different characters and different narratives, how they all fit perfectly together, and how they all actually tell a much larger story, the story of God, a story of love, loss, and ultimately eternal life. It's a story that we believe is unlike any other story, and it's a story truly that can help you make sense of and actually give meaning to your own story. So we're excited to be diving into the story together. Uh, we'll be reflecting on chapter two. That's how stories work typically. Chapter one followed by chapter two. So we're going to look at a pretty big portion of text though this morning. Genesis 12 through 36. Uh, but before we jump into chapter two, I want to review real fast what happened in chapter one. And before we do that, I'd love to, uh, to pray. So let's do that together. God, we want to experience you. We know that you are bigger and better and more life-giving than we could even imagine. And so just one moment with you, just one word from you, just one second in your presence, God, would change us. If, if we knew what we were looking at, if we knew what we were talking about, if we knew what our faith was really based on and revolved around, God, we would be changed forever. So fill us this morning with that awe and that wonder and that excitement and that passion. Pass through us, God, as you did in Genesis 15. Pass through this place and overwhelm us with your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, last week in the first chapter of our story, we learned a couple big things. The first being this, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, our world was not created by chance. It wasn't created by sea monsters. It wasn't created through the mutations of highly developed pond scum. It wasn't even created by a bunch of little G-gods who were up there in the clouds fighting with each other. It was created through one big G superior God. And this one God created the cosmos. According to Genesis, our world is not the byproduct of a giant cosmic accident. It's the byproduct of a giant cosmic creator, a good creator, a gracious creator, a living creator, and a loving creator. And out of that nature, out of who he is at his very core, he makes things that resemble and exemplify those same traits. And this creator, he is intentional in all that he does. In that first chapter, we learned that this creator purposefully separates things. He purposely spaces things out. He purposely frames things 
so that he can then go in and fill those same things with wonder, so that he can go back into those spaces that he has stretched and fill them with his life and his love and his light. See, he pushes back the chaos and the emptiness and the darkness of our world by bringing in beauty and design and order. So he separates night from day and sky from sea and land from water. And then he goes back in out of his nature and he fills those things with life. And what's true for the cosmos is also true for you. He purposefully formed you, fashioned you, framed you so that he could ultimately fill you with wonder, life, and his spirit. But because we're made in his image, because we have choice and freedom, because we have authority, because of the nature of love, we are the only part of creation that can choose whether or not we want to be filled with him. Every other part just accepts it, but we get to actually choose. So God says, humanity, I want to fill you. I want you to be filled with my wonder and my life and my spirit, but it's up to you. You can fill yourself with something else if you would like. And because we so often choose poorly, because we so often choose created things over the creator, things that have been made over the maker, so often we choose sex and stuff and success over his spirit, we end up in the condition that we're in today. We end up just like we were before the flood. All right, boom, chapter one. We all good? Understand the creation of the universe? Perfect, okay. Now, I know, I say that in, in passing, I say that kind of in, in, in lighthearted spirit. I know there are a lot of things we didn't get to talk about from chapter one. There's a lot of questions that revolve around creation and God, why would you make this knowing it's gonna turn haywire on you? And then why would you flood it? If you're a good loving God, why would you kill everybody in the flood? There's so many questions that come out of Genesis one through 12. And I don't want you to think that we're a church that just kind of like skips over the hard parts. We just don't have time to talk about everything. I mean, I'd love to be up here with you all day long. You probably wouldn't like that as much. So we put some resources online. Each week, I'll post some articles, some resources for you that will help you answer some of those questions. If the flood is causing you concern, if why God would make it knowing in advance it's gonna go haywire causes you some concern, go online. Underneath the story tab, you'll find a digging deeper section. Click on that. You'll find some resources, adults, children, everything in between. We hope you'll find some great reading and resources in that section. All right, so that's chapter one. Let's go to chapter two. In chapter two of our story, we move from God building the world to God building a nation. We go from God forming the planet to God forming a new group of people. We go from a man named Adam to a man named Abraham. And based on the number of chapters that are devoted to this Abraham, based on the fact that we read about him multiple times throughout the New Testament, this Abraham man seems like kind of a big deal. So we want to spend some time talking about this guy. What's going on with Abraham? Well, he's referred to as a friend of God. He's referred to as the father of a new nation and the founder of two major world religions. Not bad for your resume. And not many of us can say the same. But Abraham is really known for two things. One, for incredible faith. For modeling incredible faith. But the other is for making incredibly foolish decisions. Isn't that interesting how those typically go hand in hand? He's known for modeling incredible faith, but also making incredibly foolish decisions. So if either one of those describe you, especially, especially the foolish part, you're not alone. You're in good company. Abraham's right there with you. Abraham has four dramatic encounters with God in this section of our story. Let me walk through each of these four. We're first introduced to this man. He's called Abram at the time in Genesis 12. It's the top of page 13 if you're following along in your storybook. In this first interaction, God basically tells this man who's 75 years old to leave everything behind, to leave the land of Ur, and to start walking. 
And eventually, God says, all the earth will be blessed through you because you make this decision. In Genesis 15, the bottom of page 15, Abraham is more or less hitchhiking. He's walking, still walking, and God comes to him and he says, hey, look up at the stars real fast. You see how many there are up there? You'll have this many descendants in your family. And in fact, this land that you're walking in, I'll give you that land. So look up and then look down. I'm going to give you all of this. In Genesis 17, it's the top of page 17. Abraham is thinking, well, you can't have one kid or a lot of kids until you at least have one kid. And so he asks God, what's going on here? I don't think your promises are coming to fruition. I don't see the plan unfolding like you had said. And so in that chapter, God says, oh, the plan's even bigger than you thought, Abraham. Not just will you have descendants, but one of them will be a king forever. And to prove to you that I'm faithful in my promises, I'll make a promise to you. I'll enter into a contract with you. The Bible uses the word covenant. It's a relationship where you swear by your name and your very life that you will do what you promised to do. And God says, I promise, Abraham. And then in Genesis 22, the middle of page 19, God tells Abraham in one of the most intense stories in all of scripture, go sacrifice your son, the son you've been waiting for, the only son you have, and sacrifice him for me. So it's four very different, somewhat odd, a little weird weird things going on in this guy's story, yet these are incredibly significant moments, not only in the life of Abraham, but in the progression of our story. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you how Abraham fits in here. Towards the end of chapter one in the, in the story, we read that every single thought and inclination that man had was evil all the time. Humanity was totally bent on doing evil. In fact, the language literally reads, humans became unhuman. I think of this character, a lot of you guys know this guy, Gollum. Think about it, he's a pretty good looking guy. Well, okay, maybe not. But to start off, he's relatively human. And this is before the ring totally takes control of him. And look at what, look at what he looks like after the ring has its full effect. You see, Gollum became unhuman. And if you can imagine it, this is what happened to the entire world before the flood. They became unhuman human. They turned into this uh, horrendously sinful group. They were barbaric, uncivilized, hateful creatures, as sinful as sinful can get. And what happened to all of humanity before the flood is that sin had become such a problem in the world that God had to ultimately flood the world. One author describes it as uh, the waters in the flood as more or less the tears of God. When humanity becomes unhuman, God's heart breaks. He breaks over the condition of the good world that he created. His heart breaks over seeing humanity fill that frame space with everything but himself. His heart breaks as the one part of creation that's meant to exhibit and exemplify him looks nothing like him. And so because he created the world, because he cares about the world, because he's the only one that can stop the vicious cycle of the world, he floods the world. There's a lot more to it than that. But as is always the case, God's ultimate desire for his world is for it to have life. And sometimes it seems odd to us and it doesn't make sense to us. It's oxymoronic in a way, but sometimes life comes through death, doesn't it? That's what happens in the flood. Even as he's flooding the earth, his heart and his hope, his plan and his purpose is to bring life back to the world. The flood is this symbolic way of God washing, cleansing, and wiping away the old and starting again with the new. But the flood shows us something. The flood shows us the problem is not out there somewhere. The problem is right here. And you can wash away everything out there, but that doesn't really solve the problem in here. 
And so the flood is designed to show us God can do whatever he wants to with humanity, but he doesn't want to destroy humanity. And what's beautiful about chapter two is although that flood didn't work to help humanity, God's got a new plan. And it actually includes humanity. We're the root of the problem. And yet God says, I want to use you. I want to partner with you to help me solve the problem. Are you with me so far? That's where the story of Abraham begins. So let's, let's have a couple of takeaways from this man's life and see if we can't make some sense out of it. The first thing I think we learn from the story of Abraham is this. You play a part in the story, but you better understand you're not the most important part of the story. And this is a hard thing for us to come to terms with, isn't it? But look at how chapter two begins. It says, the Lord. This is exactly how chapter one began. In the beginning, God. I think the authors are trying to drill something home to us. The most important character in the story is God. The one who starts the story, it's God. The one who moves from chapter to chapter, it's God. It's his story. He's the author and originator of this story. Look at how many times God says, I will, in these first few lines. Go from your country to the land that I will show you. There I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will, because it's, it's God doing this. Now he's using us, but it's his story. It's his plan. It's his promises. It's his power. Your life and your story, although incredibly important, is but a small part of his story. And if you lose sight of that, then your story starts to come apart, doesn't it? Let me ask you a question to see if I can drill this point home. How many of you know your parents? Have met them, talked to them? That, that's helpful. Uh, how many of you know your grandparents? Have a relationship with your grandparents, know a lot about them? So most of us. How about great-grandparents? Any of us spend some time with our great-grandparents? So, smaller portion, but some of us. How about great-great-grandparents? Anybody know, spend time with? See, not not but maybe one hand. Great, great grandparents. So here's your hopeful takeaway for the day. In four generations, you'll be completely forgotten. <laughs> Thanks for coming to West Bowles. Have a great week. <laughs> I know it sounds so bad, but, but doesn't that give some light to things? In four generations, people won't remember my story. You know why? Because you play a part in the story, but you're not the most important part to the story. See, thousands of years before your story began, this story began. And thousands of years after your story ends, this story will continue on. You better understand and recognize it's his story. And for some reason, there's freedom in that. Oh, it's his story. It's not mine. You can give him some of that control. You can give him some of that fear. You can give him some of that anxiety because you realize you're not the one that's got to make this story move from chapter to chapter. You're not the one that's got to make sense of this story. You're not the one that has to bring life to this story. It's his story. But guess what? You're a part of it. You're a part of his story. It's amazing that the God of the universe would want me to be a part of his story, that he would want to include me and you. So your story will be forgotten in a few short years, but he invites you to come and be a part of his story, and then if you do allow your story to be part of his story, it'll last for all of eternity. You tired of hearing me say story yet? Because I'm just getting going. Abraham's story all by itself is really boring. Old man, old wife, no kids, born and buried in the same town, Done. Not a story we exactly tell our kids late at night before bedtime, is it? It's an easily forgettable story. But when Abraham allows God to take over his story, when he says, God, you can have my story, it goes from forgettable to unforgettable. Because it's part of the story. See, Abraham played a part, 
but it wasn't the most important part. God, again, as the author of the story, takes two people who are well past childbearing age. He takes a woman who's been barren her whole life. He takes a family no one knows about, let alone cares about. He takes some old timers who just purchased their retirement condo in Scottsdale. He takes this group of people. And he said, I want to make your story go from forgettable to unforgettable. You ready? And if they said, no, no, this is my story, then he would have moved on. But because they said, it's your story, you can have mine, he makes it unforgettable. So chapter two right off the bat is trying to show us that this story is his story. Chapter two wants us to say at the end of it, only God, look at God, thanks to God, that had to be God. Because Abraham couldn't do it. Sarah couldn't do it. Alone their story is boring, but with God, it's incredible. So you are an important part of this story, but you're not the most important part of it. But let's talk about your part just for a second. The second thing this story teaches us is that your dysfunction does not disqualify you. There should be a collective hallelujah and amen as a result of that comment. If the story of Abraham teaches us anything, is that God can use imperfect people to do impossible things. See, it would be easy to think, okay, God wants to include us in his story. So as he's looking out for options, he's looking out for people to include, he's probably like a, an Ivy League college or a headhunter or a hiring professional. He looks for the best of the best. He looks for the best and the brightest. And if your story's pretty good, he'll absorb you into his story. But if you don't really have a story, if your story's all messed up, then forget about being a part of his story. That's how the world would normally think about it. But that's not how God works at all. Abram is the most unlikely hero God could possibly find. He comes out of the most unlikely family, and then he becomes the father of the most dysfunctional family. Let me describe this family to you. Abraham's parents worshipped wooden poles. His wife, Sarah, plays favorites with her children, which messes them up real good. And she encourages her husband to sleep around with other women. One of his sons, Esau, is so short-sighted, he trades away his entire inheritance for a bowl of soup. His other son, Jacob, is a deceiver who dresses up in animal skins to trick his father and rob his brother. Your family sounds like a bunch of saints <laughs> compared to this group. This is crazy. Honestly, the first time I read through the story the last couple of weeks, I thought I was reading through the manuscript of a Jerry Springer show. <laughs> like, hold on, hold on. Is, this, is this the Bible? These people are weird. These people are strange. These people are messed up. And I'm thinking, seriously, God? This is the start of your great redemption plan? This is what's going to solve the world? This is going to solve the problem of sin? This is the answer to the attacks on creation? This is how you're going to fix the faults of humanity? Wow. You must be scraping the bottom of the barrel here. Abraham? That's all you could find? but I think he did it on purpose. See, God began this amazing plan. He continued this amazing story to prove to all of us that dysfunction in your story doesn't disqualify you from being a part of his story. And that's great news, because we're all a little dysfunctional, aren't we? You're like, <clears throat> But dysfunction in your story doesn't disqualify you from being a part of his story. You see, God is so in love with us that he's willing to use us no matter what happened to us. So your dysfunction, your imperfections, the things that have been done to you, the things that you have done, they seem to disqualify you from the story, don't they? The world would tell you that you're done, you're no good, your story's over, but God's like, wow, you're uniquely positioned to be part of my story. 
I want you to be a part of this story. God can take all of that mess and all those mistakes and he can do something incredible through them. It could be anything from shame to scars to scandals. It could be abuse or abortion or addictions. Guess what? That doesn't disqualify you from being a big part of his story. He wants you. He needs you and your story to be part of his story, no matter how dysfunctional it's been. And let me just say this. There is no God like this. See, every other major world religion would actually say your dysfunction, it does disqualify you. You mess up, well, you're out. You're out of luck, out of chances, out of God's good graces, but not in our story, not with this God. He includes people with pasts. He utilizes folks who need to be forgiven. He uses imperfect people to do the impossible. That's why I love this story. Because every other story after the first few pages is like, I'm out. And the story's like, wait, I'm in? And I'm really, really in? Like, in, in? You want me, my story, my dysfunction? God's like, yeah, I'll take it. Hey, that's all he's got to work with, right? I mean, come on, let's, let's look at each other. But I think God used it to prove just how good he is. Another blessing or another lesson that we take away from this is that you are blessed to be a blessing. The point of Abraham's story um, is, is that you are given all that you are given for the sake of others. See, God comes to Abraham and he tells him, despite his faults, despite his failures, that God's gonna do incredible things for him. God's gonna do that which only we can hope for and dream about. God comes to Abraham and basically says, Abraham, what's mine is yours. I'm gonna open up the floodgates of heaven for you and your family. I'm talking innumerable descendants. I'm talking health and wealth. I'm talking influence and land. I'm gonna give all of that to you, Abraham, but not for your sake, for the sake of the world for the sake of everybody else. This is a theme that we'll pick up throughout the rest of scripture, but God doesn't want to burden us or break us. God wants to bless us. His heart is life and light and love. And so he comes to Abraham and he says, I want to bless you, you don't deserve it, you're probably gonna mess it up and not really appreciate it, but I'm gonna bless you. That's his desire for you. But when God blesses you, he's not blessing you for your sake, he's blessing you for the sake of others. When God calls someone, he doesn't call them at the expense of everybody else, he calls them for the benefit of everybody else. He comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm choosing you, I'm commissioning you, I'm calling you out of the world so you can go back into the world and bless the whole thing. You are blessed so that you will ultimately be a blessing and become a blessing. There's a saying and it goes like this, some people are a joy to be around, while others bring joy when they're not around. <laughs> Which one describes you? Are you a joy to be around, or are people a little bit more joyous when you're not around? See, we were created for the former. We were created to be a joy. We were created to be a blessing. And we are blessed directly by God so we can turn around and use all of that to help others come to know God. Some people feel like being chosen makes you better than everybody else. No, 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 no. Gives you a calling to bless everybody else. So whether it's your material goods, your possessions, your talents, your gifts, your abilities, your intelligence, your creativity, your ingenuity, you have been blessed with all of that. You have been given all of that free of charge. Here's the catch. Use it now to serve and bless others. You have all that you have to help others, to bless others. It could be friends, family, neighborhood, school, your church, your community, and ultimately the world. You are blessed my friend, to be a blessing. That's when your story will become a part of his story. 
Some of us don't understand that or fully fathom that, so that brings us to our next takeaway. I think that we are called to believe even when we are bewildered. I think Abraham's story teaches us some powerful things. It's easy to be confused, isn't it? I came across a story this week. Uh, the pastor went to visit an older widow in her home one afternoon. She never came to the door, though, even though he rang the doorbell several times, and her car was in the driveway, so he knew that she was home. So thinking he'd be cute, he left his card on the welcome mat. On the back of it, he wrote a scriptural reference, Revelation 3.20, which says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. <laughs> Pastors just think they're so funny. Well, the following Sunday after church, he walked out to his car and found a note underneath his windshield wiper. It was in her handwriting, and all it said was Genesis 3.7. I heard you, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. That clears some things up. <laughs> but you're called to believe even when things aren't so clear, even when you don't get an answer. A big part of the story of Abraham is that he believed in God even when he was completely bewildered by God. And that's no small accomplishment. If God came to you and asked you to do all kinds of crazy things for him, to take a huge step of faith, to leave everything behind, to start something new, to end something old, if he did all that, you'd probably say, okay, let me see your five-year plan. I'd like to know how this works out. Can I see your financial statements? Can I kind of see what the 90-day uh, benefits would be, right? Or maybe a three-year plan? I'd like to know how this ultimately works out for me. I'll go where you say if you can tell me how exactly I will get there. That's how most of us operate. God, show me dates, times, timelines, spreadsheets. Give me your backup plans, and then maybe I'll do something crazy for you, but not Abraham. God says, go. Abraham says, where? God says, trust me. God says, children. Abraham says, how? God says, trust me. God says, sacrifice. Abraham says, why? God says, trust me. Can you imagine the dinner conversation Abraham had with Sarah after a couple of these interactions with God? Uh, honey, I think we need to move. Where? I don't really know. Okay, uh, when will we know when we get there? I don't really know. Okay, what direction should we go? I don't really know. Should we take our things with us? Should we not? I mean, think about this. Ladies, if your husband came to you and said, we're going to pack up all our stuff and just take a U-Haul and start driving east, how many of you would willingly sign up to do that? No, you'd probably come and find Ryan and talk to the counselors here at the, at the church. What do you, you don't have a plan? You don't know how this is going to work out? What are you talking about, Abraham? This is ridiculous. And yes, it is. That's because faith is ridiculous. You see, church, faith in God, it's not just optimism. Faith in God is not just hoping for best-case scenario. Faith in God is not just wishful thinking. Faith in God is an absolute trust that God will do exactly what he promised to do. That I believe with all my heart, not only that he can, but that he will come through. Look at what Romans 4 says about Abraham. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, became the father of many nations, just as it was said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Old geezer. Yet he did not waver through unbelief. Regarding the promise of God, he was strengthened in his faith and he gave glory to God. How? He was fully persuaded God had the power to do what he had promised to do. That's why I remember this story. Because Abraham was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised to do. That's a way to be remembered, isn't it? That's a legacy to live behind. That's something to be known for. 
Hebrews 6.19, describes our faith as an anchor for the soul. We're not talking about a good feeling here, a positive outlook on life. We're not talking about that which, uh, you know, sounds nice and gives you the warm fuzzies of my faith, you know. We're talking about that which grounds you in the middle of a storm. Our faith in God is designed to be an anchor for the soul. So the question is, what is your anchor? Abraham believed God would do what he promised. I'm just not sure that we do. See, for some of us, our moods and our demeanors change depending on how much money we have in the bank account. That's because money is our anchor. Others of us, our demeanor changes depending on if we think we're fat or skinny on that particular day. It's because our appearance is our anchor. For others of you, your demeanor changes depending on whether or not you think others like you or if they're following you or not. Others of you, you change your demeanor based upon how well your kids are doing at school or how accomplished they are in sports. Those are your anchors. And you know why your life is filled with fear, anxiety, and panic? Because the tides can easily push those anchors around wherever they want. The only anchor that gets you through chaos is your faith in God. The only anchor that gets you through loss, pain, death itself is your firm belief that God can and will do what he promised to do. That's how you get through the storms in life. You have an anchor like that. Not like money or friendship or appearance, but a true anchor for the soul. And I honestly think that most of the problems we face stem from the fact we really just don't believe God is gonna do what he said. We don't think he's telling the truth when he said certain things. Let me give you a few examples. We know he says he'll bring justice, but I just don't trust him, so I seek revenge. I know he says that I'm purposefully and wonderfully made, but I just don't trust him, so I hurt and I distort my body. I know that he says that that I'm loved unconditionally, but I just don't trust him, so I give my heart and my body to somebody else so I can feel love. I know that he says that a life of holiness and purity is the best life, but I don't trust him, and I'm missing out on all the fun, so I've got to dabble in sin a little bit. Isn't it crazy? Life is really about believing in promises. Whose will you believe in? Abraham believed in God. He was fully persuaded that God could do what he said, and it changed everything. He can go, he can wait, he can seek, he can sacrifice, he can obey, he can do all of that stuff because he took God at his word. The question is, how well are you doing with that? Is faith your anchor for the soul? A couple questions you might ask yourself this week. How well, A, do you know the promises of God? And then secondly, do you really trust him to be true? Do you really believe with all your heart that he can and will do what he promised? If you want to be a part of his story, if you want him to use you despite your failures, if you want to be a blessing to others, then you're going to have to believe in him even when you're totally bewildered by him. You're going to have to persevere even when you don't see the plan. But somehow in and through that, you will be a blessing and you'll be part of this incredible story. It leads us to our last point, we'll be done. It's amazing about this story is that your sacrifices, not your successes, actually make your story great. Your sacrifices and not your success stories are the most important part of your story. Outside of the word belief, the the word that summarizes Abraham's life is sacrifice. First time God interacts with Abraham. God asks him to leave his land, all that he's ever known, sacrifice his plans and his hopes and his dreams. Later, God asks him to sacrifice his other relationships so they can have a tighter relationships. Later on, God asks him to sacrifice his physical comfort. And then, of course, at the very end, God asks him to sacrifice his son. I bet you Abraham started blocking God's calls after a little while. Bring, bring. Uh, no, not him again. 
Every time I pick up the phone, he asks me to give something else up. Every single time I talk with this God, he's asking me to sacrifice something. You know what's amazing about Abraham, though? He always picked up the phone. You and I would be like, "Uh, you just leave a message. I'll see what you want. I'll call you back. But Abraham always picked it up. Even though he knew, he knew with absolute certainty, every time he picked up that phone, God was going to say, I need you to give something up for me, Abraham. I need you to sacrifice something. And I think it all goes back to why God originally created us. Look at this quote from Mother Teresa. You see, a sacrifice, to be real, must cost, and it must hurt. It must empty ourselves. Think back to chapter one of our story. God creates these spaces, doesn't he? He frames these spaces. He creates empty spaces so we can fill them. Yet what do you and I do? We take everything from the world and we fill ourselves up. And so God calls us up. He's like, hey, I need you to take something out of that space. I need you to empty yourself. Give up that relationship. Give up that job. Give up that hope. Give up that dream. Give up that family. Give up whatever it is. And he's going to do it incrementally because he needs to empty out that space inside of you. Because it was designed to be filled with him. And he loves you too much to just stuff it full with other things. He loves you too much to allow you to be filled with stuff instead of his spirit. And so he comes and he asks you to give something up. And so the question I want you to wrestle with this week is, what might God be asking you to take out of your your space so you have more space for him? Give it up so he can fill you up. And Abraham always said yes to it. And we remember his story forever. As we learn throughout the story, God will never ask us to do anything that he himself isn't willing to do. This is the mountain where Abraham took Isaac to be sacrificed. It's called Mount Moriah. Crazy thing about this space is that several thousand years later, this will be where Jerusalem will be built. And what's crazy about that is several years later, this will be a spot where a man dies on a cross. This is the exact same mountain where Jesus is crucified. And you know why this is? It's because the story that we're reading about, all these characters down here, it's all pointing us to a much larger story, the story of Jesus. Every single story we read will point us to Jesus. In chapter one, we read that God frames a space and puts his life in it. On the cross, God frames a space and puts his life in it. In chapter two, we realize that God is asking a man to sacrifice everything he has, to leave all that he's ever known, to endure incredible pain for the benefit of others. We see all that and more in Jesus. See, this story down here and your story down here, it's all about him up there and his story. And so if you don't know Christ and that story, if you haven't surrendered yourself to that story, it's time because everything's pointing to him. Everything needs to be about him, and somehow when you give it over to him, he'll give it back to you tenfold and in better ways than you ever imagined. So the story of Abraham, it's an incredible story. It's an intricate part of the story of God, and it's actually your story. God comes to Abraham, and he comes to each of you, and he makes you promises. He assures you of a new start, a new land, a new day, an incredible family, an everlasting legacy, and an eternal connection to the king. And no matter how bleak it looks, no matter how bewildered you get, no matter how foolish it might feel, no matter how long it may take, I pray that Abraham, we will be fully persuaded that God is in this story, will make sense of this story, and will help this story to go on forever. I'm sorry I said story so many times, you probably hate my guts, but it's important that we get it. This is the story, and I hope that you will lose and find yourself in it. Let me pray that over you, we'll call it a morning. God, You are a great God. You could have just thrown your hands up and said, enough with this world, enough with humanity. I'm sick and tired of them. And the flood is kind of a uh, a manifestation, God, of that spirit. You could do that. It's your right. It's your world. 
And yet, God, your heart is always to bring life into it. Even as dark and bleak and sinful as it, has, as it became at the flood and has become now, you still have a plan for it. You still have pl- promises and a purpose in it, God. And so we ask that we will be like Abraham this morning. That, God, we will have faith like this man. That you will somehow bring about the betterment of the world through us. That we will say yes to you. We'll surrender and sacrifice our stories and our hopes and our plans, God. We'll say yes to you, that, that you will bless us so that we will be a blessing to the world. That we will believe in you even when we're thoroughly confused by you, God. Help us to be like this man. Because you brought life to the world through this man. And ultimately, you brought Jesus Christ to the world through this man. And we want the same to be said for each and every one of us. We want you to bring life to this world through us. And we'd love for you to bring Jesus to this world through us. So we pray this week we will model the life and example of Abraham. Please make it so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So grateful that you are here. Next week, chapter 3, Nathan's got a great message for us about Joseph. Excited for that. Grab your book on the way out, your mug on the way out. Be sure to put your dollar in the bin. Have a wonderful week.